Hello, it's Pretty Little Grown Man. I'm the Shadow, speaking from 1954. Um, no, this is David Greenwald. <laughs> Welcome back. I don't... Uh, uh, I'm I'm Flash Gordon, is that a... That's a thing. Uh, I'm Flash Gordon! Hey. Buck Rogers! Oh, Buck Rogers, yeah. If I was actually... I used to listen to Shadow tape, like, cassette tapes of old Shadow broadcasts from, like, the... Um, I think the 30s, maybe, 30s and 40s, when I was a kid, somehow my parents got me into it because they're mm. weird <laughs> or something, uh, but I love them. And um, the, sh- the shadow nose. Yeah, the shadow nose, and I'm going to do the little laugh that he does. He goes, ah, 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 the shadow <laughs> nose, or something. Who can remember? Did, did Alec, Alec Baldwin was the shadow, right? In, in the movie, yes. Did he ever do that laugh? No. Oh. But that, that movie like was... That oversight. That movie was really bad. No. That was like sort of a classic when you watch a movie that feels like the 90s and you're like, oh my God, this is so 90s. Mm-hmm. That's like the shadow. Oh, it feels extremely 90s in like the acting and the special effects and like the camera, the way the like, just the way the shots look. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's very comparable to like the Phantom. Yeah. Except the Phantom was awesome. B- Billy Zane. But yeah, but the Phantom was also like this revival of this old comic book pulp uh-huh. thing. You know, so there was like this weird moment of pre was, of pre war revival happening in the nineties. That was like all the yeah, because uh, there's also you remember Dick Tracy. I know yeah. I love the fuck out of Dick Tracy. That yeah. was one of my favorite. That was one of those movies that I watched like a million times. Well, it's so funny because that stuff is like now that I think about it, I didn't think of it at the time, but that's like almost like the the Transformers toy property boom Mm -hmm. movies now like let's make a movie out of everything yeah Mm -hmm. and but then it was like let's just make a movie out of 60 year old stuff that people forgot about Mm -hmm. exactly the transformers uh four new movies oh my god really yeah they're gonna have a they're at some point in our future oh man uh probably uh unfortunately before the sun explodes and kills all (laughs) life in our universe uh just our galaxy (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right. Just our galaxy. Um, there will be an eighth Transformers movie. Oh, my God. See, this is something I joke about of, like, I'm the guy who's super happy that Marvel has, like, five more years of movies planned or mm-hmm. whatever. I'm like, yes, I have a reason to see 2019, <laughs> uh, to see Captain Marvel, you know? <laughs> yeah. But to know that they're going to make four more Transformers, I feel like when they say stuff like that... Excuse me. And the same thing with uh, Avatar. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, it's going to be like two or three more Avatars. Like, really? Is that actually going to happen? Like, when? Like, 15 years from now? Oh, yeah. You know? It's almost like George Lucas saying he was going to do nine Star Wars movies and then Mm -hmm. never getting around to it. Yeah. You know? So I do think, like, okay, I'll believe it when you put out two more. Mm -hmm. And then we'll see. Well, so today I was looking at uh, the... Um, worldwide box office numbers, like the the movies that have uh, raked in the most worldwide box office, um, yeah. and uh, you know, so number one is Avatar, number two is Titanic, number three is currently Jurassic World. Oh my god! But there's it's got an asterisk next to it because it's not out of theaters yet. That's insane. Uh, and then number four, I think, is Avengers, uh-huh. the first one. Uh, Avengers Age of Ultron is like number seven. And is this because um, these movies are just being distributed to more countries? Is that, does that really... I think it's a mixture out? between all these things. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think they're also like Jurassic World is just, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like this weird, um, you can't really put your finger on it, but it's like this weird uh, sort of cultural cognitive dissonance where it's like, 
M. Night Shyamalan's uh, The Last Airbender was a complete and utter failure in the United States, but blew up overseas. Right, right. You know, and that's, and that's like, it's almost like the box office numbers for The Last Airbender are what are sustaining M. Night Shyamalan, why, like, Hollywood hasn't kicked him out completely. Yeah. So it's just, there's, so it's like, it's that kind of factor, too, where sometimes you can't even tell what, how a movie is going to act overseas. Yeah, um, that's true. Transformers 4, uh, which is, I don't know what, it, I don't remember what it's called, Revenge of the Fallen, what's the new one called? Dinosaur Form. Age of Extinction. Yes. Yeah. That is in the top 50, uh, or no, I think it's like, the, I think it's in the top 30 Biggest grossing movies of all time. Okay. Transformers 4. I believe you. So, so world, if you're listening, <laughs> if you continue to go and see these movies, they will continue to make them. <laughs> until, until there comes a day when, you know, and probably by 2020, when these movies have, you know, half a billion dollar budgets right. or whatever. Right, right. Uh, there might come a time <laughs> when when it's not going to make more money than its own budget, but they're they're not even remotely close to that time now. So that's why you get four new Transformers movies. You did this to yourself, world. Oh man, that's funny. I mean, I saw the first Transformers and I thought it had actual jokes that were intended to be jokes, mm-hmm. and I thought the effects were. I thought it was like a pretty enjoyable. Summer mm-hmm. blockbuster. I thought the action scenes were shot ri- way too tight, and you can't tell what's going on. And it's, well, that's typical Michael Bay. Like yeah. you have no fucking clue what's going on. Yeah. Time. So I didn't. I didn't appreciate that. But you know, totally enjoyable movie. But then two more movies came out, and uh, three more movies, and I just let them slip right by, and I have no idea. I don't read about them. I don't know what happens, mm-hmm. and that's such a. I'm discovering more and more that instead of trying to be the person who is aware of every single thing, you can just let things slide by yep. and if if you know if that thing ends up being important somebody will let you know it'll yeah. come back you'll figure out life is long uh-huh. yeah not to i i don't really remember the second transformers because i i think i fell asleep because they're because they're like four fucking hours long so yeah. uh i fell asleep in the middle of it and really barely remember it the third movie um i thought was uh actually pretty entertaining um, it kind of rectified some of the problems that it had with uh, Michael Bay not knowing how to direct action movies, even though he's an action movie director, um, because some of the some of the action set pieces were, I think, pretty clever. You could actually tell what's going on. Um, I never saw the fourth one. Sometimes I think of like you know if I, if I don't really get hungover anymore because I don't I, I don't trust myself to drink is that much to get hungover uh but if i had a hungover day i think maybe i would watch transformers for dinosaur town <laughs> dinosaur apocalypse <laughs> yeah apocalypsosaurus well this podcast started randomly uh we are not watching pretty little liars this week of course but we can report that there is a new title sequence mm-hmm. uh you've probably already seen it on the internet Big spoiler, it's mostly the same title sequence. <laughs> There's a new shot at the end, and instead of the four liars, it's the, the, no, li- five, the five liars. The five liars with Allison and Spencer's bangs. Very important. Mm-hmm. Can't leave them out. And uh, we have Shay, Emily, mm-hmm. doing the shush. 
And she starts, this is really crucial. Yeah. She improves on the Arya shish just a little. <laughs> she has she has her finger in the center uh-huh. at first and then just pushes it right out. Just, just a touch. Just a touch. So it ends up being, yes, another off-center lop, shush. Off-center shush. But... Drives me crazy. So, uh, yeah, and it's funny because... Like, like I was saying when we were watching it, like you'd almost hear like the director off screen going like, branding, branding. <laughs> so she moves it slightly. Yeah, off-centered. yeah, just get it, get it over there, come on. <laughs> um, but uh, also, apparently, uh, they're going to uh, shift it up um, every week. So uh, Emily will do it one week, and Aria might do it again one week, and Spencer will do it one week, and it'll be different every week. Well, we're gonna see if any of them. Can can keep a central shishing motion because it drives me crazy. Yeah, maybe yeah. Although if you if you do center it perfectly, you are possibly revealing the lack of symmetry in your face. Or you're blocking the sh- the shush and you're blowing all the air like. Yeah, yeah, not so. You're good. bifurcating your your air blowing. So maybe there is a sensible reason <laughs> why we're getting these these ridiculous looking shishes. Yeah, so basically, uh, we don't know who the corpse is. Um, it's... Yeah, it's still this mystery blonde lady. Yeah. In the in the opening credits, and I guess it's, at this point, like, it's not Bethany Young, right? It has to be like a metaphorical yeah, blonde like lady. Yeah, you were saying it's metaphorical. They've buried a, they've buried their secret. That's their secret. Yeah. It's, yeah. Because we'll find out what their new secret is. Because they've learned nothing from this <laughs> their entire high school experience. <laughs> when they come back. And when Spencer's bangs show up in town. What if they change the title of the show to Pretty Little Honest People? Mm-hmm. Or Pretty Grown Up Honest People? Pretty, And yeah. have them really... That really rolls off the tongue. Right. Doesn't it? <laughs> and have them move forward with their lives in a really positive, mature way. <laughs> I, I guess that wouldn't fly here on ABC Family. I was thinking about this as I was driving to work today. Uh, in complete silence, just thinking about Pretty Little Liars. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> and I was thinking how... Um, it's, I mean, this is like this is like classic TV since the beginning of time, but these girls have such interesting lives. You know, you think that they they get over... They, they have all this stuff happen to them, to them and then they, they're done with it, and then they get to move on and move away and move, and move in with their assorted boyfriends or whatever um and but they have to come back to rosewood because some crazy thing is happening right like you know it's it's sort of um i don't know why i thought about this but i was thinking about veronica mars and i was thinking she's like why does all these crazy things happen in uh in neptune california and why is veronica mars always at the center of it right and and my thoughts of course were that uh well you have um I can't remember his character's name, but her her one time boyfriend who's the, who's the rich guy, yeah, and it's like, well, he's rich, and he his dad was like a famous movie star, so he's gonna find himself into situations, and he's gonna turn to Veronica for help because Veronica is a smart uh, detective person, right? You know, but like the liars, it's just like what is like they just is it just shitty luck? Like what is like right? Are they well, just... <laughs> yeah? I mean, I think you know certain people who happen to be fictional are obviously magnets for trouble. <laughs> and that's just the way it is. <laughs> we, uh, there's no there's no rhyme or reason to although it. Although I think we're also supposed to think that <clears throat> that there are a few geniuses in the bunch. Right. We're supposed to think that Allison is kind of a genius. 
Spencer's kind of a genius. Mona's a genius. Right. And so they're always getting themselves into some sort of... But they're not quite as smart as they think they are or in control as they think mm-hmm. they are. So they're always getting themselves and over their heads into some complicated situation. I mean, this is... I guess this is a problem. This is something that's going to be a problem for me with the show, I think, as it returns, is because I would love it if the show, if time, we, you know, we see time passing on the show. It's not one of these shows where it's just like a sitcom, where it's just like frozen in the same loop over and mm-hmm. over and just new stuff happens, yeah. but they go to the same coffee shop. You know, it's like a story with a progression, and the characters should be growing and maturing and continuing with that. Mm-hmm. And. We see that happen to an extent in, to go back to our favorite show that screwed up the ending, Lost, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of like change and growth and decision making happening. And in Pretty Little Liars, we see that and then it sort of slides back. And I'm sure in this new season, five years later, oh, they got themselves into some other problem and it's going to be the same group dynamic. And it's just going to be like, what, what did you like not go to college and like figure out who you were, you know, yeah. like... Well, that's kind of, and I guess that's kind of, maybe now that I'm thinking about it, uh, when I was sitting silently in my car, I think that I got there because I thought, why, why is this show still happening? I, I understand, I mean, it's the same, it's the Transformers kind of thing. The show has never been more popular, so why end it? Right. When, you know, ABC Family, which is now ABC Freeform. Okay. Uh, did you hear about that? They're changing the name? Yeah, there is no longer ABC Family. So now they're just going to play whatever they want. They don't go by the radio rules. Yeah, they, I mean, they pretty much, I think that they're finally admitting that a lot of their shows aren't family-oriented yeah. shows anymore. That's uh, But, uh, you know, The Pretty Little Liars is making that, uh, that network a lot of money, and so they're going to continue it as long as everyone's on board. Yeah. Although I do think that uh, Lucy Hale is... Uh, she said that she's only going to do one more year and then she's done. Um, oh, they can finally kill Arya. Yeah, maybe they'll kill Fitz and Arya together. Yes, And yes. they'll die in each other's arms. Well, that would be too romantic for them. They don't deserve that. <laughs> I don't know. I think that if, if they killed off their characters, I would accept that. I would accept, even if it was they were in love and they had like a lover's death, you know, yeah. Romeo and Juliet style. Uh, <laughs> did I say Romeo? You know, Romeo and Michelle style. Uh, that I think that I would totally accept that because they'd still be gone. You yeah. Know? However they wanted to die as long as they're gone. Well, you know, at this point, like, they solved the big mystery. They're jumping ahead. So whatever they do next is sort of just like weird coasting, you know? Right. And, and it, it just doesn't feel like, yeah, like it doesn't, like, it just end it. Well, I think it's okay, but it's just like, if you look at other shows like the OC, um, where season four, after they kill off Marissa, mm-hmm. there's like three episodes of Ryan like f- doing underground fighting matches and just like being tortured and brooding and not being able to deal with it. But then it like the show sort of works out that tension, uh, and then it becomes this like fun, go lucky, enjoyable show that just has a totally different vibe than the previous version of the show. Mm-hmm. Or it's just like you know, it's a new story. It just kind of moves forward and it doesn't deal with the same kind of drama. And it's still the same characters that you like. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. It's like cool to hang out with those characters. That's enjoyable. Mm-hmm. So I think like that's a very successful season of TV yeah. once you get through the sort of obligatory drama at the beginning. Um, and I would hope that I would prefer if Pretty Little Liars did that kind of thing where it's just like a year of just like 
chill out, silly, whatever. Yeah. Just like do whatever feels interesting to the characters as mm-hmm. opposed to like, nah, let's do another like, you know, nail biting, uh, whatever, white knuckle, 30 more hours of TV, you know? Well, that's, and that's kind of, isn't that the... I want the happy ending. The core question though is, is Pretty Little Liars, can it, A, can it survive and B, is it even, uh, the same show if there isn't a core mystery pushing it along. Well, I think I think that's what the flash forward sets up at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's some new villain, there's clearly some new problem, they've all been reunited again. So what'll be curious to me is like if the show sort of tries to operate at the same level of like cute boys and the sort of more pandering stuff and like recognizing that the audience is still very young mm-hmm. and sort of trying to offer that audience a product, whether that's condescending or not, you yeah. know, um, or if they'll say, well, these characters are older now and our audience has grown up with the show. Let's try to be a little more artsy or let's try to be, you know, because we know the directors and the writers and people involved with the show, like have good taste and are interested in like, you know, old French art films or whatever the yeah. hell, like why not elevate the level of the show a little bit? And I doubt that will happen, no. but it would be interesting to see them try to more superficially become that level of like HBO prestige drama yeah. that we have always felt it's on par with. I One of the odd things that I discovered when I was reading about the, um, the name change from ABC Family to... And I think it's ABC Freeform. I don't know if it's just Freeform or ABC Freeform. Anyway, is that they wanted to change the name, and in in the announcement of the name change, they discussed what they this new demographic that they're targeting. Yeah. Instead of targeting a specific like teenage audience. Yeah. Uh, they are now targeting what they're calling, and I don't. I've never heard this term before. Yeah. Becomers. Oh, God. So what does that mean? People who are like... There's people... That's young women in their 20s, right? Who are like between their first... Age... I think it's like ages... They said it's like ages like 16 to 34. Yeah. So people who like haven't settled into like terrible adult life like you and I. <laughs> right? Like yeah. people who are like Hannah from Girls, basically. Oh, yeah, yeah, This yeah, yeah. like sort of invented idea of like a, 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 this like weird... You're an adult, but you're in, not. Yeah, this like Noah Baumbach slash Lena Dunham idea of like what a mm. what a young person is like in the 2010s, which yeah. I, re- as like a responsible, hardworking person who has always been surrounded by people who are responsible and super hardworking and hustling, like I completely reject that. Mm-hmm. And I really, I like to show girls, but I really hated the last couple of Noah Baumbach movies where the whole idea was like, oh, young people are just doing whatever they feel like and going into debt and just like these happy-go-lucky free spirits. Yeah. And it's just like this very, to me, out-of-touch viewpoint of like, or maybe we're being saddled with student debt because the price of college has gone up exponentially yeah. in comparison to like cost of living, you know, or whatever it is, all these external pressures that have nothing to do with like, our generation being any more or less free spirited or hippy dippy or whatever. Yeah. You know, you know I, uh, to pause briefly and talk about Noah Baumbach. Yeah. Um, I, I, you didn't like Francis Ha, right? I hated it. Okay. 
I enjoyed Francis Ha, but I think I enjoyed it because I was expecting to dislike it, yeah. and I found that it. Um, I'm not the kind of person to defend it, right? But what I liked about it was that I expected it to be one of those movies about how here's this character who needs to grow up and she just doesn't, and and it's about her learning to how to like embrace who she is as an adult and to let go of childish things. But um, I will say that Noah Baumbach's relationship with Greta Gerwig has ruined him. You think so? I think that everything that he's done since Greenberg, which is when they got involved, everything that he's done since Greenberg, and I didn't even like Greenberg. I thought it was a tedious fucking movie. Um, Everything since has just been like, uh, a pale shadow of what he did before. Because I think Squid and the Whale is a fantastic fucking movie. I thought, yeah, I think that's pretty good. I think the best one is um, uh, Margot at the Wedding. Or, yeah, Margot at the Wedding. Uh, I don't think you did that. Margot getting married. Rachel Margot at the Wedding. Yeah, no, it's totally no Bombach. Really? Yeah, uh, the one with um, Nicole Kidman. Oh, oh, yeah. Was that? Oh, yeah. I kicking and like kicking and screaming. That was his first big movie. I never saw that one. He oh. did Margot after Squid and the Whale. Oh, okay. And I thought that. movie... Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. I yeah. thought, and that movie like is about dysfunctional adults, mm-hmm. and I thought that was actually presented a really compelling portrait of like having mental issues and mm-hmm. having a dysfunctional family and trying to get your shit together. Yeah. And I thought it was like really dark. And, but and like cartoonish and like in a, a really effective way you know like um instead of making it super gritty and real it was like exaggeratory in a way to like showcase these flaws yeah and showcase how ridiculous and painful these things are mm-hmm. i thought it was a great movie but yeah i mean francis ha I, I think like the thing i know a lot of people like about the movie is the um the relationship between francis and her friend yeah um, and the way that evolves and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And like that stuff is all really good. That's yeah. fine. I didn't think that was like enjoyable or uh, unique enough to justify the whole rest of the movie, which is just like this person, let's, you know, this white privileged person yeah. just making all these bad decisions, not really knowing what, how it's going to end for her. You know, like, oh, I just bought a ticket to. Paris and I put it on my card and just you know it's like it just glamorized stupidity to mm-hmm. me I mean it's fine to be young. That, yeah. it's like it's fine to be young and make bad decisions and you know we've all done that that's fine mm-hmm. and that you can make an interesting story about that yeah I didn't think this movie did that I thought it was just like stupid thing after stupid thing with no real character arc or learning experience or like you know, it's just like you want a character to grow, or I would like a character to grow, mm-hmm. unless that character is extremely charming, yeah. which I did not find the Francis character to be. Yeah. I just, you know, as someone who's <clears throat> in this demographic, I just find this stuff frustrating a lot of the time, mm-hmm. you know, because I don't find it to be honest. I feel like it's exploitive. I, yeah. I think that he's targeting... Um, now, like, I think of Greenberg, especially, because I think I was on board with him, and then I watched Greenberg, and I, I haven't even watched all of Greenberg. I couldn't make it through it. It's so boring. Uh, but it's, but uh, Ben Stiller's character is a, the whole, I mean, the basic idea is that he's a hipster who needs to grow up while the world around him has gone past it, and he's still right. talking about, you know, 
the 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 breakthrough album that that him and his band were going to make 20 years ago right and he for like idealistic indie rock reasons they didn't sign to a big label and so basically the band broke up i I think it's been a while since i watched it so basically the band broke up and then they just like all moved out their lives and he's the only one who hasn't moved out of his life and he's just like a terrible obnoxious person Right. Um, and then he meets Greta Gerwig, and they and she's like kind of weird, and they fall in love. And well, so it becomes this like sort of manic, manic pixie dream girl situation, which is yeah. like not really great, you know. Yeah, I just I feel like this is probably generalizing um, because I I don't I don't dislike Greta Gerwig. I think that she is a talented person. I haven't seen any of her early like mumblecore stuff. I think that she brought the mumblecore. Um, aesthetic and mentality to Noah Baumbach's movies, yeah. where before they weren't they weren't rigorous, but they were mannered in a way that they aren't anymore. Yeah, and I feel like that's a huge loss. Um, I always I, think he's. Best I haven't seen when... Mistress America, which is his new one. I I refuse. <laughs> yeah. It looks. I mean, it just looks like Francis too, and I don't want to see that. You yeah. know, but I always think that he's best with. Wes Anderson and the movies that they've worked on together. Oh, yeah. The Wes Anderson, the Wes has directed have been phenomenal. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, he... Uh, they worked on Life Aquatic together, didn't they? I can't remember now. I, I, I know they did a I know a lot of people. I know, I know a lot of people don't consider Life Aquatic like one of Wes Anderson's worst movies. I love that movie oh, I think so much. I think it's a classic. Yeah, before, so his, before his last couple... Before his like last three... Uh, now I think that Moonrise Kingdom is the best one. Yeah. But I thought Life Aquatic was the best one up for a long time. I mean, I thought I think he has one bad movie, which is the train movie. Darjeeling Limited. Darjeeling Limited. I, I totally agree. I don't like that movie. Either. Um, and I think that was an experiment for him. He tried to do something more dramatic and sort of shake out the fantasy world element. He didn't have like the long introduction where he introduces you to his world. You know, yeah, yeah. he was trying to be a little bit more dark, and I think he, I think it was an experiment that failed. And I think yep. he recognized that because his next movie was about talking animals, mm-hmm. uh, which was a great movie. Yeah, well, it was so a I think delightful he, movie. I think he like, and I don't. It's funny because I don't think I've read any critics who have taken this perspective, but I think he kind of recognized, okay, I can just be what I am, mm-hmm. and I can just know what my aesthetic is, and just make movies like that. And like the criticism of him now is like. Oh, another Wes Anderson movie, but it's just like he created this. But the this Grand, is what he is. The Grand Budapest Hotel, I think, is so Wes Andersony. But I love that movie. It's a really good movie. But and it's and it's Wes Anderson, Wes Andersony, but also like incredibly dark, mm-hmm. and in many, in a lot of ways, his saddest movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. But he does it in a way where you barely even notice, and then it hits you, and you're like, oh wow. Yeah, yeah. And I thought so. I thought it was a really great movie. I think I don't think it is as good as Moonrise, which I thought was just like, which was more of like a heartwarming movie, you mm-hmm. know? Like there's no, it's a movie about like childhood trauma and like adults not being able to deal with their feelings and like, but all that stuff is sort of buried under this really warm uh, conclusion and the the sort of like nobility and excitement of like the Boy Scout, the Cub Scouts or whatever they're called, yeah, yeah. you know, and the adventurousness of that. And it's just like, to me, it was just a, this incredible when people criticize him, I don't think they're really approaching his movies with a sense of nuance or with like uh, just a feeling for. To, without, I just don't think there's sympathy for the emotions because like that movie is such an incredible 
balancing act of like adventurousness and um, excitement and like what you would find in like a childhood storybook, which, you know, of course, uh, it's like this very obvious metaphor because the, um, the girl has her whole suitcase of all these books and mm -hmm. she like explains the whole thing and it becomes like part of the story, you know? Yeah. So he's telling you like, this is the aesthetic of my movie. Well, that's, and that's kind of like, you know, his, the, the Wes Anderson motif, uh, which is almost has, has been parodied and plagiarized to such an extent that, yeah, you're right. Like it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard, it's hard to remember that this is his, right? You know, but I think that that, that to to like to apply that to Noah Baumbach is that Noah Baumbach and Wes Anderson, who kind of came up together and for a long time seemed like uh, of uh, of a similar purview, are now totally different. Right. Where Wes Anderson is now like so far at the other end of the spectrum of. His shots are so precisely calculated. Yeah. His ev everything is so detailed and so thought out yeah. um, that it's hard sometimes to dig through that to get to the fantastic uh, characters and feelings at the core of it. Yeah. Because people aren't used to being given something that is so aesthetically rigorous. Yeah. And and also have it be a good story. I think people forget that he tells really good stories. But yeah, I think he I think he is like except among the contingent of millennials who grew up obsessed with, you know, Rushmore and uh, Royal Tenenbaums, you know. Mm -hmm. I think it just became it was just a backlash thing where he was like this buzz band who came up and put out a good record and then like Sutter kept doing the same thing, and everyone was like, oh, this must not be cool anymore because it's, ah, now it's a little bit older, and I don't know, I, you know, whatever. And I really think the backlash against him is so hollow and stupid because I can't think of a better working director or one I find more humane and, and you know, uh, talented oh, and, yeah. and attentive to craft in, like, a, in a Kubrick-level way. You know, oh my God, he, yeah. he just isn't making The Shining or he isn't making 2001 or whatever. He's choosing to make things that have a sense of whimsy or childishness or he's preciousness. Ma he's making Barry Lyndon, but like not as boring as Barry Lyndon. Yeah, and I, I, lo I love Barry Lyndon, but it's bo fucking boring. Well, yeah, well, I got halfway through it. I was like, I'm not watching this anymore. <laughs> Are you serious? I was going through all the Kubrick movies at one point. Yeah. And I mean, The Shining is definitely my favorite. But I think like yeah, the Shining's great part of the Wes Anderson thing is like, even when he does do other like sets or genres or whatever, like it's still the same sensibility. And Kubrick, I think, has a little bit less of that movie to movie. Like you don't, his the visuals change like he's able to change more mm -hmm. and the genres change a lot, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. whereas Wes Anderson sort of carries a certain sensibility with him, not just like the attitude of craft. Right. And so I think like that sensibility, people respond to it as like, Oh, I've seen this before. Not recognizing, like not everything has to be a fucking novelty. Guess what else you've seen before? Every single stupid summer blockbuster. Oh, yeah. Every single Oscar drama about like people dying in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. You know, you've seen that movie five hundred times. Like, why does? I just find all the critiques leveled at Wes Anderson to be just totally empty and disingenuous. Well, yeah, and I and I totally agree with that. And I think that the that what's what's troubling to me about Noah Baumbach's trajectory is that 
he has gone from being a filmmaker that is aesthetically comparable to Wes Anderson to now being a filmmaker that is sort of getting lumped in with the whole idea of mumblecore. And I think that what I find so disingenuous about mumblecore is that it's it's mistaking um, uh, genuineness for improvisation, where it's like, this movie is more genuine and more sincere because it was off the cuff, because the camera's all shaky, because uh, because these are non-professional actors. Um, and I think as it's strange to me that Noah Baumbach is sort of like following Greta Gerwig in that direction, yeah, away from Wes Anderson. Now, the other thing about Wes Anderson is that you know, I think that a lot of people would like to see him do, the, like what you said about Stanley Kubrick, who could basically make any genre movie he wanted to make. Right. And could do so successfully. I mean, I think that the fact that his last movie was Eyes Wide Shut is such a weird last movie. Yeah. It's, it's I, I, I mean, I, I love Stanley Kubrick. I, I can't think of a movie of his that I don't like, yeah. but it's just an odd movie. Yeah. Um... The thing about Wes Anderson is I think people people want to want him to do other things besides Wes Anderson movies. And I think that the thing that we all have to realize is that he doesn't want to do that. Right. He wants to make these movies. Well, it's just like, this is the thing I don't understand. It's like, either you, as a critic, you either have to understand what you're getting into, or you have to be able to justify why you don't like the thing that's like, the inherent part of the thing. Right. You like just don't it, like him. <laughs> well, it's like, this is why I don't, I wouldn't write about the band Death Heaven again, because <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have a background in metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't enjoy just in general, a singer who's like screaming unintelligibly. Mm-hmm. I don't find that at all interesting or, or pleasant. I don't understand the aesthetic value of it. Really. I don't find it musical. And so I am clearly not the target audience or I'm not the person who is able to contextualize or understand this thing, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like, there's no point in like not being able to understand a thing and trying to critique it in a way, you right. know, unless it's like, I don't know. I guess it kind of depends on the popularity level too. Like if you were, if some, uh, Selena Gomez or Justin Bieber was going to put out something that a million people were going to hear mm-hmm. or Taylor Swift, Better example. Taylor Swift puts out this insane weird new album and you're really struggling with Uh, it. Miley Cyrus. Oh, sure. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's just like, you know, then I think you have, as a critic, it can be your role too to say, I can't understand this and I don't think you will, listeners, either. Mm -hmm. And let me explain why. Let me explain why it's so alien or it's so, you know, whatever. But in the case of a Wes Anderson, he almost is this like sort of niche genre filmmaker. He's like a Woody Allen. He makes small films. He doesn't make blockbusters. He never yeah. has a huge budget, yeah. never has a huge marketing campaign, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like to sort of go into it expecting this kind of bland popcorn sensibility or not treating it as like, here is the flavor of this thing. Yeah. And I don't understand or like this flavor, and yet I'm going to try to write about it. Right. You know? I find that to be really... I, I don't think that's a good school of criticism. But that's... I think it's your job to try to at least make the effort to understand what the thing is at its heart, and then you can make a judgment if it's good or bad. But if your prejudgment is like, all oh, Wes, Anderson, Wes Anderson's house style is bad, 
Well, obviously, lots of people don't think so. And maybe you could try to, you know, try a little bit harder to understand what the appeal is. Well, <clears throat> I mean, I, I, I don't know if this is a relatable feeling uh, for our listeners, but as critics ourselves, right? and I'm sure you struggle with this, is when, when, you're, when, you're, when you're a critic, you have to have, at least I personally feel like you have to have a certain level of authority where you not necessarily you're not necessarily an expert Mm -hmm. but you have to have a broad enough base of knowledge in order to provide opinions yes that people can use to make decisions about consumption and so uh it's hard to admit that there is a certain type of the thing that you're criticizing yeah that you just don't engage with yeah. you know and i'll and i'll say like well, and i think you should engage i think you should try to expose right, yourself right. to as much as you can but there are going to be certain things that you just don't like or don't connect to right it's, sort and of like, it's not yeah. because those things are objectively bad that's mm. the point i'm making right exactly and but it's hard because people don't see that those sort of like they don't see that sort of gray area now you know you could say like it's it's hard to say like you're 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 a music critic, right? But you don't like metal, right? And that's hard to admit, sure. You know, most metal, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, right, yeah. exactly. I mean, it's just like, and it's I like, mean, with, with as with all things, right? Like, if I sat down and listened to fifty metal albums, I'd probably come away with from it with a new appreciation, mm-hmm. or fifty reggae albums, or whatever it is. Right. But there's only so much time in the day. And I get to be relatively picky about what I cover. And when I write an album review, it tends to be a big pop record or it tends to be something I am passionate about. Mm-hmm. You know, So it's like, given the limited hours to absorb things that exist in the world, you know, I'm going to designate some for things I know I'm going to like. I'm going to designate some for things that are, are like important that everyone's telling me to listen to. And then the things that are really popular that I have to try to understand to keep up with culture. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so it's it's um, I'm burping a lot tonight. Sorry, viewers at home. Wait, should, wait, should uh, we should we stop should we, and we do, uh, a, a do our, our plug? We can do a plug. plug. Um, well, this is the first time we've ever done it early in the podcast. Let's lay it out there. Or not at the end. Uh, so wait, so before um, before uh, as we were just starting, we were drinking a. Uh, um, I'm I'm walking away from the microphone. Yeah, come back, come back to the mic. Come back. <laughs> I'm getting the bottle. Uh, it is all, a all over the headphones. Better off red uh, from Crux Brewery. Uh, I that was pretty good. I thought it was pretty good. It was it was not. It didn't really taste very reddish to me. It it was a yeah. little. It was kind of crisper and hoppier than I. Yeah, I'm, than not, I was I'm not sure. It was pretty good. I'm not sure what the yeah. I'm not sure what the what was going on. The flavor profile. Yeah. Um, and now we're drinking a uh, Country Boy IPA from Everybody's Brewing. Is this a session session IPA? Mm, it's pretty nice. I like it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's not. It's not. It's not a super high ABV. But, yeah, not crazy hoppy. Um, yeah, it's pretty drinkable. It's. It's. Uh, if you're gonna go to it the. Doesn't taste like burning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're gonna go to the uh, to the local grocery store, um, it is one of the cheaper options. Uh, it comes in a can as opposed to a six pack of bottles. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, 
So everybody's brewing or Crux, if you would like to sponsor the Pretty Little Grown Men <laughs> podcast. Yeah, please. Uh, we are here. Add, add us on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and while we're doing shout outs before the three hour mark of this podcast, uh, if you're following us on iTunes and you enjoy the hot, hot audio that we serve up every week, yeah. um, you can go on and give us five stars. It'd be really nice of you. Helps us reach new people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to a degree, I don't really care how many people are listening. Because we just do this for fun. Um, but, it, you know, it would be nice to have more <laughs> of them. Uh, and everyone who sticks with us every week, um, you definitely are people who like the Wes Anderson flavor that we are serving up. So that, you know, that means a lot. And I, uh, this is something I was thinking about a lot this week, actually, mm. um, is that I am always looking as the thing that I've always wanted as a writer and just as like a music fan is like to find the people who get me and who like the same stuff and who I can relate to and we can have different opinions, but you know, at least we're in the same ballpark. Yeah. And that's who, as a critic, I always hope that I can speak to right. is someone who who's going to understand what I'm trying to say. I, I agree. And I, I think that I'm kind of, sometimes I'm surprised by what I write, uh, uh, I'm not surprised by what I write. I'm surprised that someone can connect to what I write. Uh, I wrote, um, I, I, I don't know if I recommend everyone go see this movie, but I do think that if you, um, if you, if you like to partake in intoxicants and watch terrible movies, especially those starring Nicolas Cage, uh, there, he just released a, yet another straight to VOD movie that I reviewed for Pace. Yes, called Pay the Ghost. Oh my God! And uh, I wrote a pretty jokey review. I did, it was it is not a good movie by any means, um, but it is a can be a fun movie to watch. And I had someone on Twitter who said something along the lines of, "I wish that all movie reviews were written this well." Oh man, that's great. Yeah, and so and I'm just like that kind of blows my mind because sometimes I like I like I when I when I write something I usually write it either for myself or when I was at the damper uh, or when I was running the damper with Mark Abraham, friend of the podcast. Uh, I was writing the mostly things for Mark just to like make him laugh or whatever. Right. Um, but to have someone else who I don't know. You know who's not like like not my mom or something to come in and say like I really enjoyed what you wrote. That makes me feel like I'm not writing in a vacuum. Right. That uh, yeah, and same thing with this podcast. It's sometimes it blows my mind that people want to listen to it, and I know that a lot of people are sticking around uh, for Pretty Little Liars, but. Um, you're here with us right now yeah. at minute number 43, 43 <laughs> of this podcast. So yeah, we, we're, we appreciate that. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah. And hopefully, and you know, we're kind of figuring this out as we go along. I think we just, we just want to talk about what we want to talk about yeah. we, we, and we, and we have opinions about everything. We do. I, you know, we, um, there was actually a couple things I did want to talk about on this podcast, and now that we're now that we've cleared our throats, yeah, now that we've warmed up a little, um, I wanted to to talk about some stuff that we wrote in the last week or so mm-hmm. um, for our our day jobs or our whatever jobs. Um, I had a story out today, uh, Thursday, um, 
about the band Heat Miser. Mm-hmm. And this is, for those unfamiliar, which I think is most people, um, they were a Portland band in the 1990s, and they were Elliot Smith's band. And he made three albums and an EP with them. Um, at the same time, he started doing his solo albums, and the band got signed to a major label, basically... Which major label? Uh, to Virgin, okay. before Virgin became part of uh, Capital, I think. And that album ended up... The band ended up kind of falling apart... He was touring and stuff for his solo albums already. Um, basically, that album sort of came out on a smaller, like, sister label of Virgin. It came out on Caroline Records. And mm-hmm. so it didn't get this, like, huge 1996 alt-rock radio push or whatever. Yeah. And then Elliot did either or. He did Miss Misery. He went on the Oscars. And that whole mm-hmm. trajectory happened. Um, and he became, like, this star. Yeah. Um, and... Me, for me, as an Elliot Smith fan, I got into him in high school. I got into him in about 2000. I know I was listening to him by 2000 and um, going through his whole catalog at the time. And I didn't find out about Heat Miser until I think I found out about them at the end of high school. It was probably about 2003. And was like, oh, God, he was in this whole other band. You know, because this is like the early days of the internet. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard to find out stuff about bands that you like. If, yeah. if it's not like... The Rolling Stones or whatever, mm-hmm. and your dad can tell you about it. Right, right. You know, um, so I found out that he had this whole other band, and got really into them and love those records as well. And so anyway, um, they're being honored by the Oregon Music Hall of Fame, which is this charity organization. They're being inducted into that Hall of Fame this weekend, and you know, no one has <laughs> ever written the Heat Miser story. Yeah, and you know, the guys in Heat Miser. Some of them pop up once in a while in, um, there was a great oral history of Elliot Smith that Pitchfork ran. There is this new film, Heaven Adores You, mm-hmm. um, which has, uh, Tony Lash from Heat Miser. Um, so there's been some, you know, some degree of these guys. Tony has been, uh, I think the most vocal of them, uh, and he's still here in Portland, but yeah. you know, the rest of the guys hadn't really spoken out a whole lot. Um, about their time with Elliot, their time at Heat Miser, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and Neil Gust, who was the other singer and songwriter and guitarist in Heat Miser, you know, I don't think has done an interview about this this era uh, in years. And he was the person who really co-founded the band with Elliot when they were in college. Um, so mm-hmm. anyway, I this is a story that really means a lot to me, yeah. and I did not think anyone was ever going to get to tell. I thought it was going to just be this this missing piece of the history. And when this Oregon Music Hall of Fame thing came up, I, you know, had been in contact with Neil. I had been in contact with Tony a little bit, um, just from being here in Portland, and asked them. Did all, you you just you just reached out to them just, I just for the sake of it? I just reached out to them to do a story around the induction, okay. and it turned out that they were all really honored and touched by it. and we're willing to talk about it and you know now it's been 20 years since the band was around about 20 years and um it's been 12 years since elliot died in Mm -hmm. 2003 and so i just feel really honored and excited that i got to do this i did this big feature story it's out today um yeah i hope everyone interesting i hope everyone will read it uh you can go on slash music and find that Mm -hmm. it it's i've worked there's not many, there aren't many stories I've worked harder on, and this is definitely like emotionally, and as just a fan of 
music, yeah. you know, I really wanted to do this in a super respectful but honest way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I did. And the guys in the band reached out to me and they all said they liked it. Um, you know, hopefully, <laughs> who knows? Mm-hmm. Who knows what they really think. Are you going but, to the induction? Um, I am. I am going. Um, Are they performing? No, it's just going to be one or two of the guys are going to come and pick up oh. the award because two of them aren't in Portland anymore. They're on the East Coast and, you know, yeah, all over. Um, but yeah, that was just something that I am really proud of. And uh, I think reader, listeners of the podcast um, will enjoy. I mean, they're a great band and certainly their music is worth checking out. And so I just wanted to share that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a really interesting read, especially because, you know, I like Elliot Smith, but I have never listened to Heat Miser at all. And um, it can, it's still, it's still a really good read even if you don't know anything about the band. I mean, that's kind of the point, too, is if you don't know anything about the band, you're going to learn a lot. You right. Know? Um, I mean, it was a really hard story to do because um, I'm trying to tell the story of... I wanted it to be the Heat Miser story mm-hmm. from the perspective of the guys who are still here yeah. to tell it. But you can't tell it without... Just in the course of doing the interviews, you know, it would come up that, like, well, you know... Tony and Elliot had this relationship from high school. Uh, Neil and Elliot had this relationship from college. They moved to Portland because Tony was there. And so he really was kind of the glue of the band, and yet he was the one who was doing the solo albums and wanting to leave, wanting more freedom. And I think it's this really powerful contradiction and this tension, and so there's no way to tell the story without him being a part of it. Yeah, yeah. And so it was difficult to tell sort of the... Elliot Smith becomes a star story while telling me Heat Miser becomes this Portland favorite who does great work and then gets bigger and bigger and then dissolves, you know? So that was like a real balancing act for me as, as the storyteller. So as, you know, I, I know you don't want to make any huge presumptions, but what is your take on, on that idea as far as maybe the way that Elliot felt like, you know, he he probably recognized that he played a big role in the band, uh, but he wanted more. And then once he started blowing up, like how like do you think that he felt guilty? Do you think that he, um, like why do you think that he started putting so much time into to his solo stuff? Like, what do you think was going on with him, especially uh, his role in the band breaking up? And then also um, the fact that he had sort of these other guys that just like, you know, gathered around him. Like yeah. That. Well, I mean, this is something that I think I we really did get, a, you know, a, a, it was hard to get a, you're trying to get four different guys plus Elliot's kind of feelings and emotions into this piece. So it's kind of hard to, uh, I guess, explain the, the complete emotional picture of what was going on. Right. But what came across to me with all with all these guys was that um, the the first album they did was very straight ahead rock and roll, mm-hmm. you know, very like of that era, 1993, 1994, really high blasting guitars and so on. And um, what happened, the interviews that Elliot did after leaving the band, he was pretty dismissive of it. And then he did some more interviews later on, uh, a couple of years later, like even into 1999 or so, where he was talking about like, well, I was dismissive of it 
because I didn't like my singing in it. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't like what I was doing and I didn't want to be critical of the other guys and I'm sorry about that. Yeah. So I think there was some poor kind of communication and I think his feelings changed. And one thing about it is like these guys mostly, you know, had reconciled by the end of Elliot's life. I mean, yeah. he and Neil did a recording session in 2002. Um, he, Neil, Elliot, and Tony all worked oh, together yeah, in yeah, 1999, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, and so they had all, it wasn't the same. But they had all reconnected, you know. They they had pushed past the kind of hard hardship of trying to make the band work. Yeah. So I don't think one of the things that came up in the story, which really surprised me, was that uh, Elliot told Neil that he wanted to do Heat Miser again. Yeah, yeah. And how realistic that was going to be at that point in Elliot's life, who knows? But it was certainly not from from everything that I know. It was not something that at that point was anathema to him or that he regretted or anything like that. Um, I mean, as far as the time in the band, I mean, something that everyone said to me was that they wish they'd been better communicators. Mm. And you have to remember, these were guys who, you know, were in their 20s. They'd just gotten out of college. Like, you know, I got the impression that there was a lot of drinking involved from, from you know, uh, certain people. Yeah. And... You know, they're living in Portland in the 90s when Portland's not necessarily, like, the greatest place <laughs> uh, or the most, like, healthy place, right, right. you know, as far as the youth culture. Um, and so I think a lot of that played into it. And what everyone said was that they just really had a hard time being able to communicate openly and having everyone do what they wanted to do. And what it sounded like was that Elliot tried to make it work for a long time, but ultimately he wanted to be making other kinds of music. And he didn't feel like he could do it in the band, whether or not that was true or not. Because he couldn't communicate it to them that that's what he wanted to do. Or he was something that, you know, Tony Lash said. Tony said that he felt, and he was very diplomatic about this and was saying he was sharing his perspective, you know, not trying to speak for Elliot. But what he told me was basically that he felt like he had become kind of an obstacle to Elliot, and Elliot had this idea in his mind that he didn't. Tony didn't want to be experimental. He didn't want to be quiet. Oh, you yeah. know, he just wanted to play in this sort of straightforward rock way that they had started out doing. Mm-hmm. And what Tony told me was that you know he was open to it. He just needed a little more time to come around. Yeah, yeah. And one of the anecdotes <clears throat> that got cut from the story was the first time they set up the recording studio to do a run-through of a song for Mike City Sons, their, their final album. Mm-hmm. Um, they did this song, which was this kind of straight-up rock and roll song that didn't make the album, and they played it back, and, you know, they set up the mics in their sort of ordinary way, and Tony said, just to see if it would work, you know, just to make sure the gear had worked, because they bought all this new gear and set up this whole studio with their label money, uh, their advance that they got for the record. And... Uh, he watched Elliot listening to the playback and he just looked deflated uh-huh. and was just like unhappy with doing more of the same. Yeah, yeah. So that was the impression that he had. So it was just like these guys who just couldn't kind of jive creatively or understand each other creatively or yeah. just, you know, get to that place. Mm-hmm. And it is really, it is really too bad because that final album, Mike City Sons, uh, you know, some of Elliot's best songs are on there and Neil's as well. And it really works as an album of just two outstanding songwriting talents. Uh, I think it's one of the best albums of the 90s. And in retrospect, it's gotten that kind of attention. It was on the Pitchfork list of the best 90s albums. And 
Um, the all music review of it's very nice, and you know, of course, at the time it didn't go anywhere. Right. But it it is really this kind of lost treasure of '90s indie rock. Huh. Um, that's a know, very long answer to your question, but no, I hope I th- that makes it clear. No, I think that it's you know this is you writing this this story. It's like that's um, you know, isn't this kind of like why? This is why we do what we do, to be able to do stuff like this. And I don't think that I've ever um, had the chance. I don't know what my heat miser story would be. Right. Yeah, this is definitely like almost like Moby Dick to me. Right. It's like I got to talk to all these guys. I got to do the story in a way that I wanted to. No one has done this before. I feel like I'm adding to not only the Heat Miser story, but also just the canon of like Elliot scholarship in a way, mm-hmm. like bringing out new elements of this, like, you know, to me, one of the all time great songwriters, like here are pieces of his life that here, here's a perspective that, that didn't, wasn't there here before. Uh, and I feel just, you know, part of being in Portland for me, it's really special that this is the city that, Elliot was in and made his first few albums. It's really special to me that this is where the softies made their best albums. Mm -hmm. You know, like so much has happened here. I mean, my two favorite bands, my two favorite artists ever are Elliot Smith and the softies Mm -hmm. and being able to live and write about that history to me as a music writer, it couldn't be better, you know? Um, And I am like unbelievably grateful to have written the story and I hope to write more, about I'm sure I will write more about Elliot and Heat Miser and you know Sleater Kinney and all these bands and it's just like the music that has come from here and that was made here is so great and it's really one of the great music cities um, so it's you know it's super cool to me to get to be one of the people who you know I feel like I appreciate it yeah. and it's good to be in a position of appreciating what you're writing about and the context and the history and like being excited about it because yeah. I could easily be living somewhere else where it's like maybe the history of that city doesn't speak to me in the same way mm-hmm. or the bands just aren't, it's not meaningful to me. Um, but Heat Miser, I've been listening to since I was 18 years old. Yeah. So it's incredibly meaningful to me to get to do a story like this. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, I don't even know. I think like as far as a, a person who writes about movies, I... I don't even know what that would be. Just like for, for like formative. Was there, was there a movie in high school or college that you were obsessed with or? Oh my god! Like, oh, I, I feel like. Um, well, I think that I think that honestly, uh, the the first director that I ever watched who I thought was doing something unlike anything I'd ever seen before, who I think in many ways um, sort of redefined what I thought movies were. I mean, in in high school, I was into a lot of movies that were popular at the time, like Fight Club was one of my favorite movies. And I haven't watched it in a long time. Um, I know that it has its problems, so I think David Fincher is a fantastic director. But... The first uh, director who I ever thought was like doing things that were blowing my mind was Werner Herzog, and mm-hmm. my favorite movie of all time is Aguirre, and 
which is such a, it, even now it's like a weird thing to say because it's like, it's not like a movie where I'm just like, everyone stop, like, let's just yeah. watch a gear A, right. you know, right. but, um, I do, uh, and this is the thing is like, this has already been done. Uh, so I don't know what that story would be, but to like write about Werner Herzog. Yeah. Um, and I haven't even honestly seen all of his movies. He's got so many fucking movies. Yeah. He's, I think he has around 70-something movies. Oh, my. Um, but, I, I didn't know that. That's unbelievable. Oh, there are, you, like, you, you will, you will find, if, like, I've, and I've seen probably, like, 70 might be, it. I would say, like, 50 would be a safe number to say, um, including, like, all of his, like, sh- shorter documentary type stuff. Uh, but, um... I've seen probably like 35, 40 of his movies. That's good. Uh, that's a lot. Yeah. And and then, and there's always like, sometimes it's just like, holy shit, I didn't like, that's a movie I've never even heard of. That's like some yeah. weird movie that he made like when he was like on a break or something. Oh, yeah. That's, um, man, that's kind of how I feel about Ryan Adams where every so often somebody emails me and it's like, man, did you hear this unreleased crazy session from mm-hmm. 2006? And I'm like, no, tell me more. I <laughs> yeah. thought I knew everything. <laughs> Um, but if you if you were to sit down with uh, with Werner Werner mm-hmm. uh, and do an interview, I mean, would you feel like that was checking off a bucket list? Yeah, I mean, I'm. It's hard because I think that he's he is one of those artists who, and I think that maybe even his movies have maybe sort of like rethink how I approach art in a lot of ways, which is he there is there is no pretension behind it there's no purpose besides fulfilling something very primal within him and i don't know include and i include myself totally in this i don't know many people who create what i would consider art whether it be just good writing period or you know paintings or or music um who approach art in such a pure way and i don't even know if that's possible for someone like me to do anymore because I'm so, uh, uh, so submerged in a culture where no matter what I do, it is affected by the things that I'm consuming constantly. And so, and I don't get that from him. I get a person who just makes things ceaselessly. Like an innocence. Yeah, I mean, and it's not like, it's it's not even, it's like innocence, but it's not, it's an innocence derived from um, almost like this sort of unfettered ego in a lot of ways. And in the sense that he doesn't care what else is going on. Right, he's just like, I'm, gonna, I'm making yeah. this movie, this is my fucking movie, and I'm going to make it however the fuck I want to make it. Um, and he's made some movies that aren't very good, but sure. I, nobody's, uh, nobody's perfect. Like a perfect example is his, his, and I'm holding up, uh, air quotes here is his remake of Bad Lieutenant. Mm, yeah. Which is not even remotely a remake at all. Like there's one scene that resembles another scene in the original Bad Lieutenant, the Abel Ferrar movie. Uh, but, uh, I think that the Bad Lieutenant port of call, Bad Lieutenant, Colon, Port of Call, Colon, New Orleans, uh, is a phenomenal movie. I love that movie. And I think Nicholas, it's one of Nicolas Cage's best roles. Uh, that was one which was, so, you know, you're, you're, 
you're not the. I have a few friends, a few cinephiles who are real Nicolas Cage appreciators, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a movie that my other Nick Cage dudes were like, yeah, this movie, and I watched it, and like I don't think I 100% understand the appeal of it. Mm-hmm. I liked it, but ultimately, like I tried to watch it like pretty straightforwardly and not like as a camp piece, mm-hmm. you know, and came away kind of just like. Okay, I mean, there were enjoyable parts of that, but I don't yeah. feel like this is like some sort of weird, subversive masterpiece. Well, it's an it's an odd thing uh, where um, it's a really it's a really scrappy movie. There's a lot of plot threads that really don't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. A lot of characters that kind of show up and then just like disappear. I mean, I mean Vel Vel Kimmer's in that movie for like ten minutes, kind of. Like, it's it's better than True Detective season two. It sure I'll, is. I'll put it that way. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, Ju- uh, um, exhibits in that movie who plays like a, a weird drug dealer. He's good. Yeah, and the, but that's the thing is like I I feel like Werner Herzog, and maybe this is not fair, uh, nor is this any reason why a lot of people probably would want to watch his movies. But I feel like Werner Herzog is a filmmaker who is not strong narratively, but he is impeccable with these certain moments that just like m- like that just like make my that like give me goosebumps with how powerful these moments are mm-hmm. and i almost feel like sometimes with some of his movies uh that one moment is worth the whole movie right and i think that a perfect example is his first movie called signs of life which is very, very loosely based on Stephen King's The Shining. I can't actually. I can't remember. I can't remember. I don't remember the timeline. It's either it's very loosely based on The Shining, the book The Shining, or The Shining is very loosely based on Signs of Life. Regardless, there is a shot in that movie. Uh, the movie's kind of a wandering, weird thing, but there's one shot that is like breathtaking and. Uh, the whole movie is worth it. And I feel like that sets the tenor for a lot of what he does. And I think Aguirre, which is so good about Aguirre, is Aguirre is just like a bunch of those shots kind of just lined up together. Right. Um, and uh, kind of like that for Port of Call New Orleans. But uh, I think that uh, he's just, he is a director who, if I, if I thought, if I sat down and I tried to figure this out, I would probably come to a certain conclusion that the things that he does so well are the things that I love about movies. Right. Well, and I, that comes down to like, you know, your aesthetic and what you want out of a movie, right? Because it's like a lot of the times when we talk about the, the, um, the bar for what a movie for good or bad or whatever, it's like, there's not, I always feel like there's not one scale. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a bunch of different scales and when you talk about movies or music or anything, mm-hmm. you sort of have to explain which scale you're rating the thing on and then explain that to your buddy or right. to your audience as a critic or whatever. Um, and I mean, with someone like with, uh, with Herzog, like he has such a particular vi- create, creative vision, mm-hmm. right? That you, like you as someone who's watched a lot of his movies are in the perfect place to bridge the gap between the fan who understands the aesthetic mm-hmm. and the average viewer who's expecting like a Spielberg kind of generic American popcorn movie mm-hmm. or some like 
whatever you would pick as sort of like the um, a generic movie sensibility. Yeah. You know, as what what the average person would agree upon is like that's a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's like a really important piece of criticism or even just talking about art of like being able to like explain here's this weird thing this unusual thing let me explain to you why it's great and bring it to a more mainstream sensibility Mm -hmm. you know and that's like what i like with something like wes anderson like i think is that's that's my gripe with a lot of critics who review his movies is that they sort of expect him to somehow make i don't know like spider-man 3 or whatever Mm -hmm. and it's just like that's not what you're ever going to get from him. And expecting that is uh, not really fair. Yeah. You know? Um, you know, speaking of Spider-Man 3, um, or even just directors who... Well, we can actually talk about um, uh, Starship Troopers here, I think. Right. So, uh, the, the one, I guess the one thing that I have... That, that I... As far... If we're talking about things we've written lately, uh, one thing that I, that I wrote lately that I... Put a decent amount of effort into um, is uh, at Paste we have this series, this ongoing series. Um, we're trying to cover all fifty states of just sort of make like definitive film lists from every fifty state. S- stuff that um, either takes place in Michigan or uh, so I picked Michigan. But the first one I did was Michigan because I grew up in Michigan. Um, I grew I grew up outside the de- of Detroit, and um, so the idea is sort of like what are the quintessential state films yeah what are the films that uh they don't necessarily have to be good but they have to have some sort of very important value that represents this is how i defined it you can define it however you want but yeah uh, that sort of this very important value that represents the state that represents michiganness like it's meaningful that it was filmed in michigan or about michigan about michigan as um, opposed to anywhere about about a very michigan sensibility and, you know, like, for example, so I made a list of these, of 20 Michigan films, and I had a big list that I narrowed down, and I had to cut things out, and um, I had to make sort of executive decisions about things. But I put, I, I, I wasn't going to do this, and then I decided to, but I put American Pie in there. And I don't really think American Pie is a very good movie, but um, it takes place uh, in a sort of a nondescript suburb of Detroit, and all of these, uh, these, uh, all the the high school students, the seniors, in the movie, the whole cast of characters are all basically going to go to one of the two major state colleges. I think they end up going to Michigan State, uh, and that's such a huge part of growing up in the area that I did. That's such a huge part of growing up in, in Michigan is that most of the people that I went to high school with ended up going to one of those state schools because you get a lot of money for in-state tuition, and so yeah. you basically are going to a really good school for not that much money on top of the fact that you're basically an hour away from your family so right. you, can, you can go home on the weekends and right. do your laundry and shit but um so i included american pie because i felt like that movie is very is very much about this idea that like their priority is to lose their virginity which is in the long run a stupid thing but it's such a big deal in college and they set up this sort of really stupid barrier where it's like, well, we have to have sex before we graduate because when we get to school, you know, we're going to have to be these, like, grown men who have to know what sex is all about. 
But the funny thing is, is that they're going to go to school with all the people that they know already. So it's not like they're oh, going to go to I school. See. Like yeah. it's not like they're going to go to school and meet like all these like world weary women who are going to expect so many things out of them. They're going to go to school and meet people who are exactly like them. And so it's like this odd idea about, especially that I found growing up in Michigan where it's like, I had to escape in order to get out of that sort of like cycle of knowing people. So I went to school in Chicago, but, um, so as, as I was making this list, which more and more was, I think, became more and more a personal idea of how I defined my formative years growing yeah, up in Michigan. Yeah, I mean, this is almost like, it sounds like you made it pretty biographical. Yeah, and I think that, like, what I discovered, too, was that there were a lot of movies that were made uh, about Detroit in the late 70s and 80s, throughout the 80s. Yeah. And, you know, what, I, I mean, I was, you know, I, I was born in 1983, and so I was pretty young, but, um, we went to Detroit a lot until probably now it's not safe. It's really not safe to go to Detroit for the most part. I mean, that's, that's a really gross, uh, misconception, but a lot a lot Detroit has reached a nadir where, um, most of Detroit is not the safest area, especially this further South you go towards the river. Uh, but when I was growing up, Detroit was kind of like this weird shitty place, but it wasn't like a place where you couldn't go to go see a show, you know? And I would go see shows in Detroit all the time because there was no shows where I was growing up. But what I discovered is that uh, um, a lot of movies were made, uh, a lot more movies than I thought were made about Detroit in the late 70s and early, and, and throughout the 80s, including my favorite movie, uh, one of my favorite movies ever, but my favorite Michigan movie by far, which is Robocop. Sure. Um, and... I think that what's 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 really brilliant about RoboCop um, is that it is a funny movie. It's a it can be a kind of grotesque movie. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a violent movie, but it has a lot of heart to it. And what's really a, at, at the core of it is, I think, a uh, a commentary on. Uh, industrialization and how that affects yourself and how you identify your own humanity when um, sort of being amongst industrialization that is so progressed and so out of control that essentially you're living within decay. So like the whole idea is that like in this futuristic Detroit, it's basically like a, a hellhole where the city of Detroit has basically turned over all governing and all police to a corporation because the corporation is promising to clean up the city. Right. Um, which is pretty fucked up. And then you have this whole idea of this police officer who uh, is becomes such a robot that he doesn't even know who he is. And, his, and the whole conflict of the movie is him trying to remember that he's a human being. And I think that like, and maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but I think that tying, there's no better place to, I think, put a movie like Robocop that is essentially questioning the idea of what, like what makes us human than Detroit because Detroit has had 
40, 50 years of decay. Right. And well, and it's a city you could say betrayed by corporations, by these automakers. Exactly. You know, because, which is which has been so dependent on. Yeah, and I mean, like a super, 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 super quick uh, cursory view of Detroit history is, you know, a lot of people are are paying attention to Detroit now because they have those like lo- those like photo galleries of all of the destroyed buildings, but Detroit has been falling apart since the the seventies when. Um, Basically, auto auto companies started. Uh, uh, so basically, gas prices started going up like crazy. So less people were investing in car companies, um, and uh, automation started becoming cheaper. So you had so you had a lot of foreign uh, foreign car companies who were becoming profitable in the United States because everything was so cheap. And so that forced a lot of uh, car companies who were mostly based in Detroit to uh, either move a lot of operations overseas or to start laying off tons of people and closing plants because uh, things were becoming automated and they just didn't need people anymore. I mean, the Michael Moore's first documentary, Roger and Me, is is about the city of Flint, which is about two hours north of Detroit um, about how it essentially fell apart because it was based, it was a once prosperous uh, city that was based around a, an auto plant that basically closed down. And so the city fell apart. I mean, you know, I, I saw that movie um, maybe in high school. And so when I heard Sufjan Stevens, Michigan, mm-hmm. I was able to connect to it. I think a lot more deeply Yeah, from like having seen that movie and gotten like a, a human picture of like what was happening. Yeah. And, and Sufjan's uh, album is fantastic because he really takes a, a broad view of Michigan, the state and too many people uh, focus on, and I kind of talk about this in my article, my, my listy article uh, is that too many people focus on Detroit and they forget that the city, uh, that the state is huge and it's a really gorgeous state. Like there's a lot of sort of untouched pastoral land in Michigan that is just like camping in Michigan is awesome. You could say the same thing about Portland and Oregon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think something that it's especially like the political differences have become very striking lately because of the, the awful shooting in Roseburg you know, President Obama is going to come visit Roseburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, people in town are planning on protesting because they are all conservative gun owners yeah. who don't want him to come in and politicize gun control, despite the fact that there was just a gun massacre at their community college. Yeah. And we don't need to go into you know this, no, our, yeah. our feelings on yeah. the matter, but you know, I mean, it's just like if you think of Oregon, you think, oh, it's a blue state. Portland's so liberal and. College educated and mm-hmm. whatever, and but most of Oregon, you know, you might as well be in Alabama or you know wherever. Oh, you might yeah. as well be in somewhere conservative, very rural. You know, it's a hunting state, a lot of gun ownership, all that stuff. And you know, moving here, that didn't occur to me at all. But mm. of course, we drove from California, and I've driven through the whole state probably about three or four times now, and it is really surprising to see how different it is outside of really Portland and, you know, Eugene and Corvallis and maybe Salem. Mm -hmm. Um, But the rest of the state is just a lot of small towns and beautiful uh, forests and lakes and rivers and so on. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's really small town rural America. Yeah. Um, And, you know, 
the feeling is very different out there mm. than it would be in Portland. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. That's, that's the respectful way for me to say that. No, I, no, I totally agree. I think Detroit is um, Detroit's a strange place. I have a lot of affection for it. And I, I feel bad about saying that it's like not a safe place. Many parts of it are not safe. But it's also just like a really, it's got a, it's a city that has a lot of beauty to it and a lot of, a ton of history. And it just is just, it's, it's sad that it's become representative uh, of like basically economic depression in the United States. Um, but anyway, to go, to go back to RoboCop, uh, the director, um, and I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, I, don't th- I don't think I've ever heard his name said out loud. But uh, Paul Verhoeven, or Verhoeven. I think Verhoeven. Verhoeven. So That's we'll, how I've been saying we'll it. We'll say so Verhoeven. Let's just, let's just go with that. So Paul, Paul Verhoeven is a phenomenal director um, who I think has often been lumped into pretty uh, less than great categories because of the fact that he made like a movie like Showgirls, for example. Right, um, and because many of his movies are science fiction, which automatically puts him in like the sort of genre ghetto. Right, which is funny because he... So Robocop was his first Hollywood movie. He's uh, a Dutch filmmaker, and he, uh, in his, he was incredibly famous uh, in his home country and known for making really elaborate historical epics. Um, and then he came to the United States and he made RoboCop. Uh, and then he and then he made he made Total Recall, amazing, which is also amazing. Uh, and uh, then he made a movie. Um, I don't know if I'm necessarily getting this in order, but he also made a movie called Starship Troopers, right? Which which at the time was uh, I think pretty critically derided. Um, well, so I just I we watched Starship Troopers this week. Uh, Hillary and I, and so it was something I wanted to, we wanted to discuss on mm-hmm. the pod. Um, I've been, I hadn't seen the Verhoeven catalog until last year or two, yeah, since yeah. since moving to Portland. Yeah. And so in that time, I've seen RoboCop and Total Recall, and I've kind of been trying to go through the 80s movie, 80s sci-fi action canon. Mm-hmm. And so I saw The Running Man, oh, you yeah. know, I've seen um, Conan the Barbarian, mm-hmm. you know, all the Schwarzenegger stuff yeah. as well. Um I mean, even uh, um, not stay hungry, but the actual re- the bodybuilding documentary that he did, Pump Pump and Iron. Yeah. Oh my God! I know. What an incredible movie! And, but anyway, yeah, I know. so yeah, we watched watching all these Verhoeven movies, and I watched Showgirls a couple weeks ago mm. as well. So, what did you think of it? I have a hard time thinking about it because it's like it's so goofy. Yeah, it's like. It's made. It's clearly well made. Mm-hmm. It's clearly made by like someone who's a. Oh, good he also did Basic Instinct too. I forgot Basic. Instinct. Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't, that, I haven't seen that one yet. But the thing about Showgirls is like, it's clearly a well made movie, and yet the subject matter that this level of craft and budget is attending to, is kind of ridiculous, right? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the acting is really bad, mm-hmm. or it's very over the top. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't seem to know. That it's over the top. Hmm. Uh, it's just like, so it like, you could watch it as a camp piece. You could watch it as like, you know, talking about like these hierarchies of taste or whatever. You could watch it as like on a being a different scale than like a quote unquote good movie. Yeah. Um, but I feel like it was not made in any sort of winking, 
way necessarily. Mm-hmm. Certainly not for Elizabeth Berkley, who comes across as being just like very earnest and just like someone who is not a good actress. Yeah. Uh, other people in the film maybe have more level of self awareness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing that I I I think ultimately I liked it. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that was troubling about it was you get to I was trying to figure out what what the point of it was what he was trying to say because in RoboCop and Total Recall you know there's this anti-corporate message mm-hmm. like it's pretty clear yeah. what the moral value what the morals of it are yeah. in Showgirls it's like sort of a critique of Vegas but um, in some way in other ways it's not mm-hmm. you know I mean it's sort of a feminist film but sometimes but it, I, it like it tries to do certain things, and I'm not sure it gets all the way there. Yeah. And maybe that's because it's being made in 1997 versus in the 70s or be, right now, or when some of these ideas about feminist power or uh, sexuality or whatever maybe felt a little more clear or cut mm-hmm. and dry. Yeah, it's it's honestly, it's been a long time since I've seen it. And I remember when I saw it, which I was an adult. It's like I was watching it when... Um, I was like a teenager or anything, but I remember thinking that I didn't dislike it, but there just, it seemed to be, it seemed to want to be so many things right. that there was no clear, it, like all the people who were making it weren't exactly on the same page. Right. Like it's not clear if it's like this like erotic thriller. I mean, it beco- it ultimately becomes an erotic thriller, mm-hmm. I think, but there's a whole lot of it where it's sort of very silly and campy oh, yeah. and you know almost and like naive and it's like a star is born kind of stuff mm-hmm. like ooh blitz and glamour but then it becomes like this very dark thing and the turning point if you've never seen the movie this is a spoiler but the turning point of course is like the rape of her friend mm-hmm. who she's grown apart with and you see her sort of sliding into like the money and the drugs and the Vegas lifestyle yeah. and then all of a sudden she gets snapped, snapped back into right. loyalty to her friend, but leading up to that, it's such a it's such a shitty, horrible thing to have happened to the friend, mm-hmm. and for for basically the, for the main character to, to, to have a lesson. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and it's like that's really shitty, mm-hmm. and that feels like a bad script decision. Yeah. Like something bad should have should happen to her. Right. For her to understand it, but I, you know, it's it's like a complicated movie. I don't think it's a terrible movie. No. I don't think it's a. I think it's like a. It's a movie with a lot of um, failure failures, basically. Yeah. Oh man, that makes. I'm, I I'm, I'm gonna have to watch it again. Like. You don't have to watch it again. <laughs> That's been so long. Yeah. Though, since I've yeah. Seen it. It's it's interesting. I don't think it's an essential movie. Yeah. I think it is like a failed movie. Yeah. Um. But okay, so Starship Troopers. Yeah. So. so, so I, we, Go ahead. Also, what I feel about Starship Troopers, which I've seen it a number of times. Yeah. Um, in fact, I just, uh, I watched it, when, I saw it when it first came out, uh, and I thought it was just like a cool alien action movie. I watched it again a few years later, and I thought it was like a, just a fucking brilliant movie. And then I, I watched, uh, I watched the, uh, the riff tracks. I went to a theater and watched the Rift Tracks people like talking over it. Yeah. Which I thought was funny. You know, I, I, I don't think that it's like a bad movie that's worth doing that over, but I like what they do. So it was, it was entertaining, you know, and I don't mind people picking on the movie. I think it's a, an easy movie to pick on, but, 
Um, and then I watched it again maybe like four months ago or so. Um, I think that... Now, and the reason that we're talking about this is because you you said something on Twitter about it, and I like it, which was that you didn't think it was very subversive. I see. I think it wanted to be subversive. Okay. I believe that the intent was to make a subversive movie. Mm-hmm. I don't think it is. Okay, so I'm wondering. I don't know if I would go out and say it's a subversive movie, but I do think that it's very morally problematic in a way that I think invites a lot of um, thought about uh, a war and uh, the industrial machine and or, or the, the, the military industrial machine uh, and uh, about you know the whole idea of patriotism because um, it's a movie about how and it kind of reminded me of Ender's game the more I thought about it with the, the idea that yeah they have a lot in common. That we um, that we need to that we need to defend ourselves and that we need to thrive and we're reacting to basically like you know like there's the big attack where like Rio de Janeiro gets basically destroyed and you know we need to respond and it's like we're gonna fight and we're gonna win and we're gonna survive but there's also this question of is it do as human beings do we deserve to survive? Like, and that's kind of the idea is like we are encountering a species that we automatically place as the enemies, but they, they have just as much of a, of a reason to survive as we do. It's just, they have a different way of doing that. And maybe they, you know, it's like the same with like the, the aliens in Ender's game. It's like maybe the, the alien, that's just like. It's hard to understand the motives of a, a race that we don't understand. Right. And in both of these films uh, and the book that Ender's Game comes from, you have the aliens being othered into this disgusting form, into, into, a, into an insect mm-hmm. that is basically something that we have a visceral, many people have a visceral disgust to. Right. You know, so it's not, they're not given an anthropomorphic relatability at all. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's very easy to be disgusted by them and hate them, and like, of course, that's done to show the sort of what war does to us. You know, the black it creates this black and white thing of good versus evil, mm-hmm. which is ideally what you would want in a war situation. You would want it to be good versus evil. So this is here's what I found troubling, or here's what I found like uh, maybe as the the failure of the movie is that it's to me it's clearly like. An homage to World War Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, because like yeah, there's the the so much Nazi insignia. Yeah, I mean, there's just the way the uniforms are done. Yeah, you have the sort of like the the music. You have the like wartime broadcasts mm-hmm. of you know uh, this very promotional kind yeah. of you know stuff that you obviously didn't have in Vietnam or the Gulf War or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's very much this like Star Spangled Banner, you know. Yeah. Uh, marching band, like, oh, America, or in this, not even America in this case, but the world, yeah. humanity, be a citizen, join today, you yeah. know, this very, like, World War II propaganda aesthetic mm-hmm. uh, put into, like, a computer thing where you have, like, the screen, the movie shows you, like, a button that gets clicked or whatever. And so it's, it's this clever way of showing you, like, the future version 
of World War II propaganda. And the attack on Rio de Janeiro is the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah. You know, uh, and then you have this, like, evil enemy who, of course, is evil. But yeah. the, so the, the issue with that is, like, in World War II, I mean, the Allies versus the Axis powers, I mean, Hitler is what, one of the greatest villains in history. Right. It, it was a straightforward battle of good versus evil. Right. You know, whereas this movie is trying to imply it's using the World War II uh, mindset, that kind of good versus evil mindset, and yet it implies that, well, maybe the bugs, maybe the aliens are just defending themselves, and we got into their territory, and they're just being trying to kick us out, and they're entitled to their space too. And that's raised like one time in the movie mm -hmm. by the TV reporter. Yeah. Uh, who, and, but it's only raised in that one section. Well, right? do you think that... So, Go ahead. Well, I think that, you know, like, you're, you're right about the idea that, you know, the, the Third Reich is evil. There's no question about that. Well, I, I, guess, I guess the question, so the question the movie raises is like, should we apply that level of black and white, you know, good versus evil, heroism, uh, enlist, be a noble, be, be a citizen, be a worthy mm -hmm. person, um, should we apply that to this another situation, to a future war? Yeah. Have we learned anything, or are we just repeating the same propaganda? Yeah. Um, so I understand that as like a critique, as a potential critique right. and a subversive thing. But the problem with the movie is that it raises it in that one moment, and the whole rest of the movie, it doesn't really do that. The only real critique that comes out of it that feels like a critique is the ultraviolence of it. Mm -hmm. and the horror of war. But that, to me, is deflated by the main character. You think he's killed, and you're like, oh my god, this is, this is what happens. This guy enlisted, and he was so bright and full of life, and then like this horrible thing happens to him, and he just dies. Mm -hmm. um, but then he comes back to life. He's basically uh, put into the medical bubble or whatever and brought back. Yeah. You know? So there's basically this war is suddenly pre presented as consequence-free for our heroes, and there's a scene where you think Denise Richards' character is going to die because her ship is basically this wall of flame comes out, and yet, you know, 10 minutes later she pops back up again, and there's no consequences at all. Well, I mean, I think, I don't know if I'd agree with that, because I do think that, like, the one, first of all, the, and I can't remember the name of the characters, but um, uh, the main character, his, his like, good best friend, uh, she's killed. Right. And um, more broadly, I think that one of the things that is, that is, is so uh, jarring about the movie um, that it just takes as a matter of fact is the, uh, the fact that all the sexes are together. They're all showering together. They, you know, there's no, there's no division of genders in, uh, in the army. Um, which at first you're like, oh, how progressive is that? But it's so it's such a weird carnal thing, like where they all just like. Um, I keep thinking of the time when like the their their uh, their former teacher, who is now their like commander, comes into the tent and finds the main character and his friend ready to start fucking, right. and he's just like. Go to it. Well, okay. So here's the vibe I got from this movie. Rather than it being this critique or this 
farce, mm-hmm. I didn't think it was like funny enough or over the top enough to feel like a farce. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had the like clearly propaganda sections, but then the rest of the movie was pretty much just sort of a straightforward Spielbergian summer action movie. Mm. It didn't feel, and the violence is super gritty and yeah. and real. And like, I didn't get the sense of like it's it was so exaggerated or so you know what's the difference between that and like a a, a Vietnam movie or whatever yeah. you know the difference is very very thin and I think this is the problem the failure of the movie to me as a viewer is that the difference is so slim that if you weren't watching it thinking that was there you know knowing this is by Verhoeven and there's going to be some critical message in it mm-hmm. you know the way there was in his other some of his other movies you would walk away from it not seeing it because it's just not close enough to the surface and it's I just think it's very basically very barely there at all like they tried so hard to make this like movie that would pass as a summer blockbuster that in fact they actually made one. Yeah, and I think that um, you know, and you might even say that in that way, it's it's might be trying to critique summer blockbusters. You know, and I and I think that like my love of Paul of Paul Verhoeven is not it's not without the admission that I think that a lot of what he does he doesn't exactly succeed in. Um, because I think you could say, probably say a lot of this for every one of his movies, including RoboCop, which is that it sort of like skirts this weird line between ultra realism and total farce. Right. And he sometimes never really seems to like find where he wants to put the movie. It's like he wants it to be everything. And his, his movie, uh, Black Book, I think is a huge example of this, which is that it's a... It's like this weird psychosexual World War Two movie that also has like some really really weird scenes of like degradation on the main character's part, where like there's a there's literally a scene towards the end of the movie where she is covered in feces, she's covered uh, in shit, geez. and you're watching this, you're just like, why is this happening? What is going on? What is he trying to say? Right. Like she's already been degraded enough. Why would you like physically degrade her to that extent? It's it's a real strange sensation to watch that movie and i get that in starship troopers too where it's like he has a lot of ideas about what he wants that movie to be and it can't be all those things at once like it here's, you get, here's what i thought here's where i think it succeeds i think he th- he thought he was making a farce but in fact he was making a movie that was actually a teenage boy's fantasy of war because if you look that's at that's a good that's a good way to look at it. Because yeah. the main character is this guy just out of high school, and the whole movie is like, first of all, he has the girl on the football team who's obsessed with him, mm-hmm. uh, and he's like, who's beautiful, yeah, and he's like, oh, I'm not interested in her because I have this, uh, you know, because he has this Denise Richards, yeah, uh, and yet, so as she she breaks his heart, and then yet he just looks over, oh, here's the girl who was obsessed with him mm-hmm. in a pretty creepy way who just shows up and was like, yeah, I came to this unit not to be with you, but actually to be with I you. I totally did, yeah. And then the commander <laughs> is like, yeah, dude, don't look don't look away from a good thing. And he's like, oh, okay, I guess I'll like have a sexual relationship with this person who I like was not interested in two minutes mm-hmm. ago. So it's like this guy basically is just has uh, anything he wants. Like he just has women paraded to him, mm-hmm. handed to him basically. He's in the army. He just sort of escalates his way up the ladder you know, because his commanders keep getting killed. Yeah. Although he does have his own 
achievements. He is worthy of these roles. Right. You know, so it's this like, even though we know he's not very smart, he has poor test scores, all that stuff, mm-hmm. you know. So it's this fantasy idea of like, well, I'm, I'm good at football and like, so my athleticism or whatever is going right. to carry me through any challenge. You know, it's this like sort of weird boyish confidence in yourself. And then all, it just works out, everything works out for him that he goes up the ladder and ends up being... This is where, like, the movie has, like, two different ideas because there's, like, the farcical Dr. Strangelove element of, like, well, everyone keeps dying, which is why this guy succeeds, you know? But then there's also the straightforward element of, like, but he also does all this good stuff and he he blows up aliens and, you know, whatever he needs to do in the movie. So he rises to the challenge after this, like, sort of initial failure where he screws up this one time, you know? So it's, like... It plays to me much more on that level of like this boy's fantasy of war where like there aren't a lot of consequences and at the end of the movie it's him and his two best buddies walking off into the sunset and it's like it just doesn't reach the level of uh, of critique or farce or whatever to me because it just plays all that stuff pretty straight. Yeah. The end of the movie is strange though uh, to the extent that... Um... You know, it's he. He is like he's he's in command, um, and as far as being a mil uh, a a person in the military, he's successful and respected. But his best friend's dead. Uh, the woman. Um, but that's not. I mean, like, because at the beginning of the movie, he, Denise Richards, and uh, Neil Patrick Harris mm-hmm. make a pact that they're all going to be friends. And at the end of the movie, there they are again. Yeah, except, all together. Except. Neil Patrick Harris is like this weird, uh, crazy, like fascist, like experimental doctor. Yeah, and, he's psychic. Yeah, and Denise Richards is basically just like uh, been proven that she's just kind of a shitty person. And I don't know. I feel like the end of the movie, like it's sort of like, yeah, let's walk off in the sunset together. But they are just like all just like been so hilariously damaged at that point sure sure you know i mean yeah i but i just it's just like it's a question of like does the film tell is the film actively telling you that the stuff it portrays as good is in fact bad Mm -hmm. and i don't think it does that loudly okay i think it does that here and there in in a i just don't think it was extreme i don't think it's exaggerated enough i just don't think it like is clearly... I don't think it's obvious that you could watch this movie and see it as a farce. Yeah. I think the sort of World War II-y, propaganda-y stuff like, comes across as silly and exaggerated for sure, but then the rest of the movie is like, you know, it's just not far enough. It just doesn't wink at you enough. It's it's not quite clear enough what they wanted to say. Yeah, and I think that if you're... Yeah, if you're looking at it... If you're judging it by the same standards as... Which I think is totally valid as like Robocop, which I honestly think is a subversive movie, um, even if you're just looking at it as like the fact that it was it came out in 1987, it had the same sensibilities as like a Back to the Future, but it was uh, initially rated X, yeah, because it was so hyper violent, yeah. Um, so it's like this gross, gritty fantasy movie, 
uh, that's pretty subversive, and they sure. had a lot to say, you know, especially during like the time of like blockbusters, the time of the, the Back to the Futures, and, yeah, yeah, and when Spielberg and George Lucas were basically like ruling and Star the Wars, cinema. yeah, exactly, yeah. and movies with movies that had like a very like bright, hopeful aesthetic, right, exactly, and you have this movie that like operates under that kind of guise, but it's really just a dark movie full of like grotesque violence, right. Whereas, like, Starship Troopers and, like, Independence Day came out around the same time. Yeah, yeah. And Independence Day is a movie that completely, authentically embraces these ideas of, like, humanity standing together, fighting this powerful threat, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and there's clearly no camp. And there's some jokes in Independence Day, but there's clearly no camp. Mm-hmm. It's clearly not winking at all. Yeah. And I guess if you compared the two of those together, you would sense much more of the wink of... Uh, Starship Troopers, but I think this kind of on its own, in the context of science fiction movies or whatever, um, yeah, I don't think it quite gets there. I mean, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought it was... I understood that what I was watching was not this, like, sort of straightforward oh, yeah. movie. You know, and I think in part because they cast the, this unknown guy as the main character. Casper Van Dien? Yeah. Which is, like, a, a sign to me in a way that, like, it's not supposed to be, I don't know. It's like if they cast some, like Leonardo DiCaprio or whatever, then you you almost have to take it more seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, but by casting this fresh-faced guy, it's like uh, he doesn't sort of carry that gravitas mm-hmm. with him. And so it's like they could be making fun of this guy. This could all be a satire. The movie in a way kind of does because he's just kind of, he's like so like very classically handsome. Right. And And he's like the football jock. And he, and he's so all American, you know, even though right. they don't live in America, right. and uh, and then to have him sort of like changed irrevocably by war. Where by the end of the movie, it's like he's kind of just he's. I I think I guess the movie. What I find subversive about it is that it's a it's a a, a patriotic war. It's it's. It's ostensibly a patriotic war movie that is actually really super pessimistic about, yeah. and 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 maybe like, and I think that's probably a difference of opinion where you don't think it says it loud enough. Where I, at the end of the movie, I'm just like, I don't like any of the characters. I feel like it's just like they haven't done, they haven't accomplished anything. They've basically like made one step forward in this like grand war. There are a lot of sequels to this movie, none yeah. of which I have any desire to watch. Yeah. But, um, the idea that like this is only the beginning of this war, and look how far we've look how damaged we already are, you know. But it but it's but it, but it's operating under the the sort of symbology of like yay America, yay human race. Yeah, right. Look at us, we came together and we sacrificed, but we came out of it uh, with our pride intact, and we're we're ready to keep fighting. Yeah. When really it's just like, no, your world is fucking broken and you're, there's really a chance you're going to like be decimated by yeah. this, this alien. Race. Yeah. I just didn't, I just didn't take away the same level, I guess, of despair, mm-hmm. you know, cause they do capture the brain bug and it's like, all right, we're going to figure it out and we're going to learn how to destroy these guys. And, you know, I think it does end with enough of a feeling of hope 
Yeah, I guess, but also like the people, the the guy who's going to figure out the 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 secret of the brain bug is like a fascist Nazi doctor, you know? Right. Well, yeah, I mean that's sort of the compare. I mean that's sort of the thing. It's like, are you watching the Americans in World War Two, or are you in fact watching the Nazis? Yeah. You know. And so, yeah, I think that those elements are there, but I think like watching it myself and and knowing something about it, going into it and expecting, I was watching it the whole movie like waiting for like the wing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like I ever saw it, okay. yeah. you know. I so it's like it. I think I totally understand why people watched it at the time and didn't get it. Like they didn't get what the real message was, because mm-hmm. uh, I just think it needed to be a little bit more obvious. Mm-hmm. But Fair it's, enough. I mean, it's interesting to watch it as like, or Showgirls too, as these movies where it's like, it almost got to this level. Like Showgirls, like is almost a great movie mm-hmm. in a way. You know, it almost tells us this taxi driver-ish story of like mm-hmm. this like noir modern updated noir story of like yeah. this dark you know seedy lifestyle and this adventure that this character has to triumph over whatever you know um but it just doesn't quite get there and mm-hmm. so it's interesting to watch these movies as like almost like noble failures that mm-hmm. that were clearly made by someone who's very talented oh yeah but i you know people just didn't understand what they were trying to say. Yeah, it's to look at his career, uh, you know, uh, wrapping this up, to look at to look at his career from a from an aerial view, uh, it's kind of amazing. I mean, he's he's a very um, he's very Kubrickian. He he t- takes all these different genres and kind of just like throws them into the vat and and adds his own like weird campy sensibility to him um but he has like a lot of ideas about it i i don't know what he's doing next i for some reason i feel like he's working on something that might have to do with jesus um which i think would fall in line with a lot of what he's been doing because he does have a lot of especially in robocop is the whole there's a lot of christ symbolism in there yeah um but i like him a lot and i think that Partly what's so appealing about him is that he's just, he can be so messy. You know, he's just, he can be a really messy director. Like, yeah, I would, I wouldn't say Starship Troopers is, is anywhere near my favorite movie by any means, but I do really, really appreciate it as something that exists. Well, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting to me to watch. I'm really fascinated by like movies that aren't quote bad movies, but are movies that like fail on some level mm-hmm. or on multiple levels yeah. and like the room is kind of the biggest example of oh, that yeah. right of like a movie that fails in so many ways in terms of like the the technical levels and the craft levels and so on but like also is incredibly compelling and like is is a actually a completely sturdy homage to rebel without a cause mm-hmm. and like you know all this sort of weird stuff yeah. that you can draw from this movie and like showgirls is the same way where it's like it has all the ingredients of a good movie but then there are these certain elements of it that really screw it up mm-hmm. um or what's another one like the kind of bad movie that i think is genuinely bad is like a movie like um baby mama where you have mm. this super talented cast, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler. It's clearly made by people who know how to make a real movie, a Hollywood movie. It looks like a movie, and yet the plot is completely idiotic. It goes nowhere. It's not funny. It's not interesting. You know, it's just sort of dull, predictable 
mush. Yeah. You know? And that to me is like the worst movie where it's like, they, it's clearly something somebody spent a lot of money and effort and professionalism on, but it just has nothing to offer. I, uh, I would like to talk about, um, once you've seen it, uh, The Martian. Okay. Because uh, I have a lot of those same feelings. It's yeah. Uh, I saw it again. Um, I've seen it twice now. All right. Uh, and because uh, Rebecca wanted to see it, I liked it a lot less the second time that I saw it. And I feel like it's a really extremely well-made movie that has a lot of good things going on. But when I left the theater, I just felt like it was dumb. Right. It just doesn't add up to anything. Yeah. I mean, my least favorite movie of all time, uh, and I saw this, you know, when it came out, so I was, I guess, in high school or something, uh, Le Divorce. You ever seen this movie? Oh, I've heard about that. It's basically just like this completely depressing, dark movie about these two, you know, pretty sisters who just are in these bad relationships and just can't get their shit together. And it's basically just like this completely joyless, unpleasant piece of filmmaking hmm. um i mean of course very well shot very well right. executed not amateurs in any kind of way just a really joyless useless script and it's mm -hmm. just like i don't understand why movies like this get made yeah. i didn't learn anything i didn't connect with anything i this is just a story that made me very unhappy and <laughs> wish i had not I wish I, spent, I wish I spent two hours doing literally anything else. Yeah. Like, but it's not unhappy in like an edifying way. I didn't learn about some tragedy in history. I didn't think about my life or whatever. I was just like, these are unpleasant people making decisions that make them sad. And now the movie's over. Um, I think that that's a good way to transition to the fact that Hopefully, you haven't spent these past two hours. We have been talking for two hours. Oh, my God. This is our longest podcast yet, listeners. Oh, my God, no. Hopefully, you, you've spent these two hours with uh, someone, some people that you do enjoy. Yes, yes. Be and, happy. Be, be, you know, enjoy your life. I mean, we recommend that you do other things while you listen to us. Like, you know, you can do dishes or walk your dog or... The laundry. Do the laundry or, you know... Uh, do yoga. You can exercise while you listen to us. Um, <laughs> go running, you know. Yeah, go for a jog. Um, you know, let us accompany you on your on your adventures. Uh, you probably shouldn't do like when you're driving. That's that's a good time to to listen to, to us. Uh, and hopefully, we don't waste your time. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you can always turn us off, which. Many of you have certainly done at this point, so uh, yeah. If you've it's made okay. it, if you've made it, mm -hmm. thank you. Uh, we hope that we have enriched your lives somehow. Uh, and like we already said, go and star us on iTunes. Give us five stars. Don't don't decrease stars based on the length of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, write, <laughs> that's a great point. Write us a review about how uh, you think that we have great great viewpoints and you like listening to our voices and uh we're also on twitter at plgm podcast um and uh maybe next week we'll talk about the martian or maybe next week we'll talk about uh, ashley benson's uh instagram post uh that really offended a lot of people even though it was like not even offensive at all oh i want to just pretend that didn't happen and move along <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
<laughs> Real quick, she dressed up as a lion, and she said that she was Sissel the lion, even though it had nothing to do with that at all. A lot of people got offended. And then she blamed her social media team, and it became a whole kerfuffle. And anyway... Um, I'm more surprised by the fact that she has a, a social media team. Everyone has a social media team, Dom. Yeah, we need to get except a yeah, team. except us. We're our own social media team. <laughs> Dom is the social media team, in fact, for for PLGM podcast. Uh, but thank you for being with us. We'll see you next week. If yeah. you, if you have any uh, fall movies or TV or whatever you'd like us to check out and talk about, uh, let us know. And until next time, star us on iTunes, bitches. <laughs>